Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I do intend to change that intro, I think, because uh, I think I need to make it a more fluid intro than just boys and girls or ladies and gentlemen. So I'll I'll figure out how to do that. But anyway, uh, I'm excited to welcome my guest on this week's uh, podcast. He is the founder, managing partner of Entourage Effect Capital, Mr. Matt Hawkins. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Len. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I I, uh, I went through a bunch of your content uh, and your interviews and uh, very interesting stuff. I think uh, you've you've given a lot of insight, but I was missing something from all those. I want to learn more about like where where you came from. So more about you, and we'll we'll get to you know entourage and all that stuff. But where where did you grow up? I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I uh, went to University of Texas at Austin, and uh, been kind of a Texas boy ever since. Um, now I spend a lot of time in Fort Lauderdale because it's where our office is, uh, and it's where the woman I love lives too. So I spend that that helps. But uh, where we're in Fort Lauderdale, I used to have a place in Los Solos, right on the New River. It was called the Symphony House, I think. I sold that condo a long time ago, but uh, it was right next to where, where the Symphony was. Yeah, well, that's our office is right by the Broward Center. Oh, is, okay. Yeah, I mean it's right there. Like, I mean, out my window, I can see the 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 uh, the Broward Center. But um, 
but yeah, and then my girlfriend lives further north, so it's uh, but but yeah, that's I mean, our office is right there. It's a beautiful place, man. I love that yeah. place. It was just a pain. I, I was from, I used to live in Philly. I'm from Philly, but I live in LA now, and and f- it's not like you know, you drive to the beach, you have to get in a plane, you have to fly. And we had a, uh, a little, uh, little kid at that time. And yeah, it was a pain. So I ended up selling that one and buying a place at the Jersey shore. So we can drive there every weekend. <laughs> so a bit easier. Uh, yeah, it, it definitely was easier, but not, not the same kind of uh, weather and not the same kind of atmosphere. But uh, exactly. so you grew, you grew up, uh, do you, you have siblings? Yeah, I got. I have two uh, younger sisters. Um, my parents were were pretty young when they had me. Um, uh, and yeah, and they still. In fact, in Dallas, we're all probably about two miles from each other tops. And uh, so, in fact, I'm taking my parents to dinner tonight. As a matter of fact, cool. Uh, so I, yeah. I take it they're still together, and uh, they stay yeah. together. Yeah, okay. They stay together. Yeah. I mean, in fact, my. Uh, my, my, my ex-wife and I have a daughter who's about to graduate from college, but when we got divorced years and years ago, uh, that was, that was shockwaves for this little Catholic family in Dallas. But we're, I, I mean, now the irony is, is that we're, we, we get along better now than we ever have. And she comes to family events. And so my parents are fine. With that. Yeah. You got, you got to tell me how you did that because I've been divorced for 11 years now, almost 12, I guess. And we're, we're not at that stage yet. I mean, we're okay. Yeah, I got lucky. I mean, we just, I think we both, uh, you know, I think we, we, we both knew that, that, that being married to one another just wasn't the, the best way for us to live our lives. And, but I think we also have a tremendous amount of respect for one another and look, she's the mother of my daughter. So, uh, I just, you know, I think more for her, she's put, let the bygones be bygones and, um, we just lived our lives and my parents have always thought of her as the third daughter. So, um, I didn't want to get in the way of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think that makes sense. Uh, I think having mutual respect is really important, but you know, <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, man, is this say, how you start all your podcasts? Man, I'm <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just curious, man. I'm, I, I think hurt people hurt people kind of thing. So when there's yeah. injury, it takes time to kind of heal. Totally. Uh, yeah. You know, but it did it, for us too. Yeah, for sure. But uh, uh, so you, you went to school in Austin. I, I ju- I'm curious about, because I used to be, we have a lot of parallels. I used to be a commercial real estate broker. I used to work, I used to be the managing director of KW Commercial, the commercial division of Keller Williams. So I, Keller okay. Williams was, uh, uh, it was uh, headquartered in Austin. So I used to go all the time, but I, you you know, maybe in the mid 2000s, but Austin has changed so much because I was just presented South by Southwest before. So when you were going to school there, what's the difference between how it was then and how Austin is now? Oh my God. I mean, it's not even, it's so as I was in school, so I was in school from 88 to 92. Mm-hmm. And that was when Austin was basically just kind of, it still is, you know, the liberal bastion of Texas, it's the capital city. The city back then was basically driven by, you know, state government agencies. Well, then all of a sudden, this little company called Dell popped up, and it was one of the first, you know, large non-public employers. And um, and so then that just led to this tech craze that continued and really never ended. Mm. And now Austin is 
continuing to boom and grow and it's but it's gotten to the point to where you know it's it's funny it's a city that's that's landlocked by the hill country the hill country starts on the western edge of town and there's really no way to build any infrastructure for moving mass amounts of people uh on the, the far west side of town and so as a result you've got two north south thoroughfares and maybe two east west thoroughfares that are you know major highway types and that's not enough and it's a and it's a nightmare I, I remember when Waze first came out i used Waze more in austin than i did in los angeles yeah i mean it was, and it because it, it's you got to go through you know neighborhoods to get to where you're going to avoid the the you know the crazy traffic yeah you have a lot of people are you know, especially during the pandemic, a lot of people from LA that started moving over to uh, the Austin area and people like Joe Rogan would talk about it. So now he oh, yeah. himself and all, you know, his people uh, down there. Well, he, he lives on the lake, which is on that west side of town. And he yeah. probably just has his little area that he, that he goes to, which and, and not doesn't venture much further around that because getting to, from where he is, getting to downtown can be an absolute whip. Oh yeah, I'm sure. So when you were growing up, uh, what is it, did you have sort of a, this is what I want to do when I grow up? Or were you trying to figure out like, you know, some people no. are, I want to be a musician. Did you have anything like that? No, I was, a, you know, I went to an all guys Catholic school that was, that was, that was a very, very good school. Um, and I, you know, graduated somewhere in the middle of my class because I, I, mean, I had geniuses in my class, but you know, I was athletic. I played three sports. That's really all I cared about. And um, and then wanted to go to Texas because where my whole family had been. And you know, I really didn't get serious about my post college life until the very end of college. And you know, ninety two was a terrible job market. Um, started in sales, and um, but I always I just started meeting people that were older that had been in private equity and. So I started to kind of just, you know, try to work out the path to get to that angle. And I ended up taking a job with a uh, boutique turnaround organization that focused on, uh, at the time, the guy, uh, it was Hole and Associates, and Dick Hole was, at the time, the, the preeminent receiver in the Southwest. I mean, he had been involved in all kinds of different uh workouts as the court appointed court receiver uh, court appointed receiver and i was able to jump in and you know help find assets you know cobble together plans to for paybacks and things like that and then we also started doing some private turnarounds and that's when i really was able to learn how to put together deals put together um opportunities to raise capital and I really cut my teeth. I got my MBA, you know, doing that. Yeah. And, um, and that led me to doing things on my own. I raised a couple of funds on my own. Um, you know, that was, I did that all the way through 2014 when I sold this, uh, multifamily acquisition platform. And, uh, that's when I got into this, uh, I forget that I also work for an institutional, um, true PE shop that we focused on distressed debt and equity investing. So that's how I learned how a fund works because I worked for one. Um, and then after that, I started doing stuff on my own. So anyway, so then I, um, 
we sold this this platform and it just happened to coincide with the you know shortly after Colorado and Washington and Oregon had gone legal and one of the things I had done in the downturn back in the you know 2007 8, 8 9 and 10 was private lending and so when we sold that company in 14 I turned that deal spigot on and just kind of started seeing things from uh, you know deal hawks that were in my network and one of the things I started seeing were deals for warehouses um, that were needing to get out of their commercial debt and wanted to get into private debt which would give them the ability to lease their facilities to cannabis growers so so were you what during that downturn 2008 through 10 or whatever it was uh, some some people were saying it's still going on, kind of. Well, were you doing uh, distressed assets like REO and uh, and uh, yeah, notes, exactly. Notes we stuff? did. I, I raised some money um, to. We had a uh, kind of a distressed lending platform, but we also were buying uh, both distressed debt and distressed assets from banks, and typically it was um bulk residential packages right and we in some cases we had a fix and flip model in place but it really depended on the um you know what that particular uh bucket of assets looked like and um and they were you know being sold for just so cheap that it was a matter of who had capital to, to do it at the time and we luckily had a nice capital source where we Wish we could have done more, but we did a fair amount, and then that's what led me to the multifamily side, and then here we are. Yeah. So you were saying that you started seeing assets that were cannabis-related warehouse. Yeah. So that was so after all that, so that's when I started seeing these, you know, warehouse owners looking to refinance their mortgages, mm-hmm. and I knew nothing about cannabis at the time, but what I saw were the opportunity to get high yields from these loans. Uh, you had the real property as your you know, first lien on that, and uh, and the uh, loan to values were were you know crazy good and attractive. Mm-hmm. But I just had this feeling that the yields would dry up, and if I could figure out how to underwrite the cannabis assets themselves, I might have a first mover advantage. And so this was in 2014. And there was maybe you know one other group at the time, our friends at Poseidon that were that were doing this, and Emily started like six months before me. And so um, I can remember in going to the first, you know, MJ BizCon that I went to in either in 14 or whenever that was. I may even go in 13, but it was, you know, there was less than a thousand people there. And, uh, and anyway, and so I, I made a couple of loans and then, but after that's when I said, you know what, I'm going to try to raise some money around investing in these cannabis companies. And, you know, as you can imagine, trying to do that in Texas was a little bit tricky at the time, but I found a couple of guys that were interested in trying it out and we cobbled together a decent sized fund. And, you know, now we just closed our third fund and we're not going to raise another one right now. We're going to see what happens with this market, <laughs> but uh, we're going to do something. We just don't know what it's going to, how it's going to look. So when you, when you went out to your, uh, your network to raise money for, you know, for cannabis, uh, would you first start focusing on like picks and shovel companies or was it plant touching right away? Because first of all, you know, it, it was difficult to do that in 
2014 anyway. Second of all, you're in Texas, which is, uh, you know, it still is an interesting cannabis state. So how do you get people, I don't know what your experience with cannabis was, how do you get people uh, to actually say, okay, you know, this is going to be a legitimate industry and uh, mitigate the risk? Well, I I spent a fair amount of time just trying to get comfortable with, you know, the fact that I wouldn't get thrown in jail for doing this. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) you know, and I'm not sure I ever got comfortable back then, but, you know, that was back when the cold memorandum was around. And, you know, there was, you felt somewhat secure. Um, The irony is I felt less secure when Sessions uh, revoked it, which was, you know, how many years later. So um, anyway, back then it was all about, where the deals were obviously we weren't doing anything in texas there's nothing that existed here so i happened to have because of those relationships i made with the 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 uh the tenants of these uh, facilities in colorado you know back then i mean it's still a cottage industry now but back then it was you know just a few tom dick and harry's that were in the space and all of a sudden i was this new money even though i really didn't have two nickels to rub together. But as a result, my deal flow was, was incredibly robust. And that's what got us started. We just saw some really interesting opportunities. It was a very, very healthy blend of plant touching and non-plant touching. And, and the, the, the diversification, which we talked about back then about being that way, um, was largely driven by the luck that we had in the deal flow that, that came our way. And that was originally Cresco Capital Partners, right? Cresco Capital Partners was the name. Uh, and it's same thing as, uh, you know, uh, my friends at, uh, at Cresco Labs, we just thought Cresco was a neat word, so it was Latin for bro. And then finally, years later, I just was laughing with those guys. So I was tired of getting confused with them. And they said the same thing about me. And I said, look, it's you guys have a brand. I don't. I'm going to change our name. <laughs> but I, I, you just answered my next question. That's why I was actually going to ask you about the connection that, or the perceived connection because there's oh, two, there was a, two I mean, companies. There was 100% of perceived connection on our end. Um, and I think they probably got tired of, of, of thinking that, you know, they had a private equity arm that they didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> you sure, man? Because I think it doesn't hurt them to have some deal flow coming to them as well. <laughs> no, but it, it got, it got, to, we, but seriously, we laughed about it for a long time. And then, um, it just got to the point to where Charlie and I were talking and he was just like, and I was like, look, it's just, it's just, this is the right thing to do. And that's why you changed the name. That's, that's what yeah. I'm asking. Got it. Yeah. All right. So we'll pretend nobody's listening to this one just between you and me. I'm, I'm just curious. I, I have, a, I'm friends with, or was really friendly now once in a while with a gentleman named Brian Reed. I don't know if that name rings a bell to you or not. Uh, he was, I think, at the time, the chief science officer, maybe, of Ibu. Uh, oh, yeah. If that, if that rings a bell with yeah. John, oh, yeah, with yeah, John yeah. Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> with John Cooper. Yeah. So sure. I want to, and we, we had a deal in place, uh, my company and Ibu. And then all of a sudden, it was like, we're selling for like 400 gazillion dollars and all that stuff. I need to know how you pulled that deal off because that is the most, one of the most legendary uh, deals in the Well, I didn't have anything space. to do with it. I just invested <laughs> in it and got lucky. I mean, that's really the bottom line. I mean, John, I will say this about John Cooper. Yeah. Um, I, and I'm not going to mention another name because I don't want to throw him into Greece any more than the audience put himself in that. But, but there was a crook that was running it. 
and he got himself in a lot of trouble. Somehow he came out unscathed, was able to shyster other investors into another deal that, that didn't work out. And he's, he raised hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis. It's all gone bye-bye, yeah. except for the money that he brought in for Ebony. And John saved that company and just, and was, you know, yeoman-like effort to turn, you know, chicken shit into chicken salad and, and sold it to Canopy for a ridiculous price. And the good thing for, and, and, the, and the best thing that we've ever done as a firm was that we knew that there was a high likelihood that once these uh, Canadian LPs could start to buy some assets that we needed to have uh, a Canadian brokerage account open to be able to sell these assets pretty quickly because we weren't set up to be a hedge fund, nor do we want to be. We wanted to sell these assets and then liquidate the assets if we got public currency, which is what we did with Ebu. And it was, a, I think that deal alone for our investment was like a 15 or a 18x or something silly. So that obviously was a driver in our very, very good success of Unwall. Yeah, it's been, it's interesting because the technology was interesting at the time, but, uh, you know, the industry is mature to understand. Yeah, I'm sure. And I, I mean, I, I have no idea. My guess is that it's just sitting on the shelf somewhere in Canopy <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I, I have some contacts there, but you're probably right. They're, they haven't been using it, but, you know, it's a part of learning experience. So another connection is uh, Thunderstorm. So uh, one of my yeah. closest friends is Cameron Clark. Uh, oh, great. Which is interesting. Yeah. So Cam is a, is a good friend of mine and Keith as well, but more, more with Cam. So I was curious about the investment strategy uh, because we've, you know, we've taken on investments before. And why I always talked about having a strategic investment partner, somebody not only, it's not just about money, it's about good money and, and giving, you know, that advice or, or whatever it is that you need, because it's more strategic, not just kind of, uh, uh, you know, getting, getting a check. So I believe that you sit or sat on our board, but do you feel one of your investment strategies is like, we want to not only give you money, but we want to oversee uh, the investment and make sure that we also provide some added value. Is that, is that an investment strategy? That's, I mean, 100% what we do. I mean, that's another reason why we want our name changed is that the entourage effect, you know, the entourage effect, we all know what it is, a cannabis, but we like that to equate that to what we do as a investment firm too, because you get the benefit of our network. Uh, you get the benefit of our portfolio. Uh, you get the benefit of our, you know, longevity in the space, the benefit of our private equity backgrounds um, and all that plus the capital is what is attractive and why a lot of people want us in their cap stacks. Mm. Um, for us as investors, the other thing that's very, very important is, you know, backing quality management teams. And the thing about Cameron and, and Keith was the fact that they had, you know, these were real operators, you know, Stanford pedigree guys that saw an opportunity in cannabis and attacked. And they weren't just, you know, young guys trying to get rich quick. They were, you know, these guys came in and rolled their sleeves and are um, know how to do it. And have done a very good job building a very, uh, you know, top three 
gummy brand in California now in three other states. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a huge differentiator uh, of actually having access to your portfolio companies and helping people work together. Uh, there's been so many conversations that we've had with uh, you know investment banks, private equity, and it's just money. And, and I, I think that connecting that network, we can all work together to sort of make everybody rise. Um, what, I was curious, because this just happened recently, what do you feel like uh, the recent uh, bank challenges, we'll call them, with uh, you know, SVB and Signature Bank and uh, First Republic? What do you feel the effect is trickling down to the rest of the industry in terms of, it's already difficult to get money these days, but what do you think this does to the confidence of uh, investors? It doesn't help at all. In fact, it, it just makes things worse. Um, for us as an industry. Um, however, I have not heard anything that leads me to believe that money's tied up in banks that are that have failed or in banks that seem to be um, on the verge of that. But if this trend continues of uh, money flowing out of community banks and state charter banks, credit unions going into you know, big bulge, big bracket banks, then that's not good because we can't get into those. And so um, I'm, I'm nervous, but I'm also grateful that we haven't had any, any issues, at least in our portfolio that I've heard of. Why do you think it's been so difficult to raise money over the last couple of years in, in the cannabis space? You know, cannabis over COVID was essential and all these spikes were coming up, you know, yeah. everybody's consuming, everybody's, uh, you know, uh, revenues started increasing, but all of a sudden, you know, it became really difficult to raise money uh, in the cannabis space. And I started seeing this trend of the next shiny new object in the psychedelic space. But, you know, you have a pretty robust industry and you really don't have much of an industry in the psychedelic space. Why do you think there's uh, this? Well, let's let's, let's let's separate those two. I'll come back to psychedelics, but let's let's talk about the first part of your your question, which is incredibly important. Um, it, it's twofold. One is that we all know we can, there's no institutional capital here, so our, our 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 universe of investors is limited to uh, family offices and individuals, high net worth, high net, high net worth individuals. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some cases, maybe there's a handful of institutions that are in the legalized states, they're putting out a little bit of capital, but it's not a lot. Um, what's happened is that universe of people that have been in the space have been burned, and either by their own, you know, picking the wrong horses on their own, or in some cases, some of the funds not performing the way that they, you know, were expecting to. And as a result, they're on the sidelines now. And you combine that with the fact that all of the issues that are going on in California right now, and now some of the issues that are going on in New York, the, the illicit market is dominating in those states and, and pretty much in the country. And until states start to do something about that and be true partners with the legalized operators, it's going to continue. So it, it's, a, it's a big problem. I mean, you know, one thing that, you know, there, there's a couple of things that give me a glimmer of hope. One is you look back to the vape crisis that was all 
pointed at the illicit market and there, and even the CDC came out and even said that and that that actually tamped down the illicit market for the time being for a little bit now with the fentanyl crisis there's some you know people are scared that maybe buying their weed on the street is going to be laced with fentanyl well we need to trumpet that as a legalized uh uh you know, sector and, and, and remind people that we're seed to sale safe. Um, there was an amazing article, uh, an op-ed written in Bloomberg this morning by Michael Bloomberg himself about the mess that's in New York right now. And it's, they completely screwed the hooch by, you know, delaying the, the launch, trying to get their, the social equity program uh, up and running. Because what happens while they were delaying all that, you had a, over a thousand illegal operators that were opened in the boroughs that are still in, in, in service. And these people, you know, the legalized sector, these, some of these people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars out of their own pocket just to get in business. And now they're behind the eight ball because these illegal operators are, are taking market share from them. It's just wrong. And California is no different. And what's going to be interesting is that now for the first time, uh, tax revenue is down at the state level in California, and these and the, so these politicos are going to say, "Well, what what happened?" So they have two choices: they can either tax the companies more, or they can be smart and realize that if they would enforce the law and go and shut down the illicit operators, then they're going to, you know, as a result, uh, they will then you know transform that market into the, into the legalized one, and more tax revenue will come in that way. And otherwise, if they do it the, the way, the, the former way, people are going to continue to go out of business. Yeah. So if you were the cannabis czar, let's say, uh, what, would be, what would be the action that you would take to try to enforce and also to be able to regulate this? Could, you, could it be done the way it's being done now where different states have their own not, standards? Not $250 fines in New York. Um, that's for sure. Uh, California, you know, there's a little bit more teeth in terms of what they're doing, but th- there needs to be a task force that goes out and does this. And they need to be a partnership with law enforcement to go do these. And they need to destroy inventory. Um, I mean, I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I certainly have all the questions. <laughs> and, um, and it, but it, look, it's, it's just, I'm tired of being, I, I, I've been loud about it, you know, for, the past six months or so, and I'm only, I'm, we're only going to continue. We're going to up our lobbying efforts uh, for both state and federal, uh, you know, reform, and we'll see what happens. I think there's, you know, the more, but the the silver linings are the more states that come online, the more you know people that are you know that are in favor of legalizing, which is now damn near seventy percent. I think the latest Gallup polling. Uh, two thirds of Americans live in a legalized state. You know that's robust, robustly, at least robustly medically legal. So these idiots in you know Washington are going to have to pay attention to that at some point because it's their constituents. I, I mean, that's that's what I was going to ask you if uh, if it can actually be done on a state level without having federal oversight. Because I mean, they're talking about rescheduling. They're talking about safe banking. I'm not sure what safe banking. I think safe banking is really important. I'm not sure what that's going to do to tempt down the illicit market. 
uh, as you mentioned, there needs to be enforcement and there need to be standards and need to be government oversight on that. So That's everybody right. can have equality, but I don't know if that can be done at state level. It has to come from the federal level. And it's not about rescheduling, in my opinion. It's about, you know, ending prohibition. We already have alcohol prohibition was ended. They let the states decide how they're going to do interstate commerce. And they had uh, federal government agencies in place to make sure that there's quality, there's uh, a conformity, the lab testing is the same sort of standards in place. Uh, this state to state, it's just not working because every state has their own, you know, compliance I agree with you 100%. I just I don't think that happens overnight. I think I think there are, you know, a a a descheduling or at least rescheduling to 3 at least gets rid of 280E and that um, you know, assuming we can get by this damn international treaty that keeps popping up which makes no sense to me, but I, mean, I don't know how Canada's doing it because they're part of that treaty too, but um, in any event, I think there's a um, Let me put it to you this way. I've been, I don't want to prognosticate prognosticate on when things are going to happen anymore because I've been burned. Um, But I can tell you that the industry needs something to happen and it needs something to happen quick because it can't survive in its current construct. And we're talking about a $30 billion legalized industry that's teetering on, on, on its edge right now. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned 280. I mean, it's crazy how much money that, you know, it's being left on the table and not allowing companies to operate just like any other business, $30 billion business. Um, what makes a good investment uh, on your end? Like, what do you, what is it? I know you mentioned uh, the, the management team, but what else, like, what, what is your criteria for a good investment? Um, depends on the day. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. I'm teasing. I mean, I think, it, you know, our, our third fund, the way it's constructed, we're very, very excited about it. It's, um, it, you know, fund two is very California centric. So we do have, uh, you know, a lot of things that we're concerned about. We still think there's a pathway to some significant success, but it's, it's contingent upon some things happening in that state that I was just was talking about. Fund three is more, you know, on, on the plant touching side, you know, still a lot of vertical integration, but it's, but it's in the limited license states. You know, we made a, a couple of nice investments in, in winds in Missouri and Maryland before, you know, as they were, uh, you know, moving up the step to go from, you know, medical to, to, to rec. Um, we're, we're ancillary heavy um, in fund three as well. And, um, and, there, and there's actually some technology in there that we're excited about too. So, but the, the common theme in all of them is, is top quality management. Um, and we also, for the most part in fund three, we're making larger investments in later stage companies. And so, um, you know, we don't have as much dry powder as we would like right now. Yeah. And that's just an, you know, an example of where we are as a, uh, as an industry in terms of, of capitalization, but we're still able to write, you know, decent sized checks that can move the needle for some of these larger companies. So if I were to read between the lines, I think it's a company that has some stability and looking to scale. Like that's right. The, you're yeah, just I mean, that's, confusing. That, that, that's our, I mean, you, you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, our, the, the mantra for fund three was to, to find the leaders and in, in sectors and build scale around those. 
Yeah. No, I think I see that as a much, I'm not on, on your side, but I see that as a, a more stable investment because of all the stuff that you just mentioned. Uh, right. You know, people establish themselves and they need extra capital to be able to scale, uh, not only nationally, but internationally. Uh, I mean, what's going on in the rest of the world is, is really interesting in the, in the cannabis space. Uh, are you looking to see, uh, you know, other countries and investment in other countries as well? Um, you know, we, we have our eye on Europe and we, we made an investment fund too in a, uh, in a European play that's starting to get a lot of traction that we're very, very excited about. But that's kind of our beachhead right now. Mm. Um, but it, we certainly don't discount what's, what's, what's happening over there. But I think other countries would be a little tricky at this point. Mm. So you invested, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was, uh, I'm friendly with Milan Patel, uh, who's yeah. the CEO of Pathogen DX. Yep. You guys invested in them as well. We right? did. Yeah. So just, are you, do you also have a focus on the medicinal side and research and development and, and having, uh, because, you know, cannabis, one of the, one of the things that that's talked about all the time, oh, you know, there's not enough research and all this stuff, uh, which we're, you know, we're really, really focusing, uh, you know, our efforts on. And that's why, you know, working with companies like uh, Pathogen DX and other companies like that, is there a separate focus to say, hey, you know, in, in our due diligence, they're focusing on medical and research. So they get like a little bit of a, an extra bonus in your due diligence. No, it's, I mean, it really is. I mean, the underwrites, the underwrite. And it's, and it's, and it's, you know, we're, we're, we're capitalists. So if there, if there is a way to um, penetrate market share and get there, you know, in a bigger and faster way, and it's on the medicinal side, then we're all ears. Um, you know, pathogens a good example. I mean, they do things outside of cannabis as well. Right. Uh, and a lot of different, you know, fantastic, you know, testing, um, you know, methods and, 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 uh, and, and programs and products in fund three, for example, we've got an investment in how labs, which is the, uh, only commercially available, uh, breathalyzer for THC. Um, it, you know, measures THC content in your body at that very moment in time. And, you know, this is a, it's a game changer. And so, uh, yeah, but that, you know, that's, it's, and it's not for law enforcement. It's for you know companies that are trying to stay within their you know insurance regulations for drivers going from state to state. And so it's a and, you know this is a piece of equipment that can help them do that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I read about that too. It, it, the challenge with that is, I don't think the amount of THC in your bloodstream or uh, in your body correlates to how high somebody is because somebody well that's different. so so that but that's not for us to determine what right it's exactly to, the, the company and, and because it's not like blood alcohol content where there's a universal you exactly. know amount of, that you can be under the influence of and, and that's what it's measured by companies will have to come up with their own standard and we'll just yeah. we're just going to measure it for them. yeah no so, it, it makes yeah. total sense i i agree with you 100 percent. that's that's exactly what I was going to say. Just because you have a measure, somebody needs to come up with some sort of standard because everybody. Yeah. And I think that, you know, but, but, but ultimately that, that quote unquote impairment level is still something that companies have to look out for, um, you know, from a, from a CYA standpoint and yeah. from, you know, and I think those, I mean, at the end of the day, this is nothing like alcohol, but it, but it's still a psychoactive. And there's at some point where impairment could come into play. I, I don't, you know, I don't know what that is, but these companies, I guarantee 
that are buying into this product will we'll certainly figure that out. Yeah, and, and the reason why this is really important, I, 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 met, I was invited to speak at the National Insurance Conference. One of the only people to speak on cannabis. So the insurance industry has their actual scientists trying to figure out what is the threshold, not only in the workman's comp side, but also how do we cover you know, this as medicine and what does it mean and what is the risk associated with that? So they're, they're trying to gather that information. I think once they get enough information, the federal government starts looking at this a little bit differently. Uh, that's going to be a huge game changer, like it is in different European countries. Like in Germany, your cannabis prescription is covered by insurance. Doctor prescribes it for a condition. It goes out automatically, comes back, and it's covered. And you, you know, you have limitations on what to choose from. But that's the way it works. I, I think there was already a path uh, going forward. In that uh, I'm curious. It just popped in my head. Is there competition between like different funds? Do you guys compete against each other? <laughs> um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I can't speak for the others. And we've got good relationships with. Um, a wide swath of, of, of players. I will say this. Um, there were a lot more funds around back in, you know, 17, 18, 19. And I don't think there's very many that have raised, you know, three funds or more um, just because it's, it's hard. And it's, it, you know, like I said, cap- capital is, is dry right now. And until, you know, we, you know, Luckily, we started pretty early and we were able to build our team and be prepared for, you know, times like this and, and also be prepared for when we need to ramp up and, and, and raise capital and do it quickly. So uh, we just got to weather the storm just like the rest of the industry does. Yeah. Is there any state or country that is like they're doing this right? This is a good example or mostly right with little tweaks. Like who would you look at and say, you know what? This is an interesting model. If I were to say, look at this state or this country's model, maybe you can replicate something like that. That's a good question. I don't know about internationally, but we do, you know, obviously some of the states where there's limited licensing here um, are, we feel like are the best places at least to invest. Um, And then, you know, as the market grows, issuing more license at that point. I think as long as the states can continue to learn from other states' mistakes, then it's, you know, the regulatory side will only get better. But if if they continue just to be stuck in their ways of what's not working, which a lot of them are, uh, it ain't going to get any better. Is Texas going to be a future investment opportunity for the cannabis space? I mean, I would love for it to be, but until Dan Patrick is no longer lieutenant governor, there's no way it's going to happen. I mean, he's just way too far right. What's interesting is that the the House side of the legislature is probably open to it. It's still dominated by Republicans. But Dan Patrick is so far right that in in the lieutenant government, governor has so much power in the state of Texas that he can just himself personally not allow something to come to the Senate floor. And right now, that's cannabis. Well, how do you how do you change that? Is it is it you, more? You, you elect him out of office, and unfortunately, he just got reelected. So, does that mean that he's got a pretty big constituency in in well, Texas? Well, I mean, look, there's that? still a that that the far right. I'll never understand. I mean, look, I live in a Republican state. I mean, I'm you know for the most part, it's a. I mean, there, there's still parts of of 
the bigger cities that are democratic, but, um, but the politics here are, are tricky and it seems to be getting more and more polarized like it is everywhere else in the, uh, um, in the nation. And, you know, the, the far right is grasping at things that, that most people in the middle don't agree with. And I think, well, what are they grasping at? Because I, I'm curious because, you know, we went through this with Boehner, for instance, and we know that he was a big opponent of cannabis when he was Speaker of the House. And then, you know, he got out and went to Acreage. And I, I know when this representative that met with, like, he met with people that had tremendous difficulties, uh, you know, diseases and, and veterans and all that stuff. And it really changed his opinion, at least so he says. I, I mean, it doesn't doesn't hurt that he got some other green from acreage to to join the board. But, uh, you know, so I, I, I honestly don't know. But I do know that, you know, the religious right is way against cannabis legalization. And they are a big supporter of Dan Patrick. And that's probably where the conversation should end. I don't know if he takes meetings. I don't know if he listens to veterans with PTSD. I, I just don't know. And, um, and quite frankly, Texas is, hasn't been a focus of ours because we feel like it's a waste of our time right yeah, now. Yeah, we have bigger fish to fry in the states that we're in trying to get that you know, squared away. But I, I really believe, and I've said this since day one, that Texas will be the last state in the union to, to become yeah. fully legal. And I agree with you. Um, what's, what do you feel or know the, uh, the pharma industry? Like, what's their involvement in the cannabis space currently that you're aware of and what do you feel is going to happen in in the future are they going to be a proponent of that is that something that's going to be helping the industry or are they going to be a hindrance to the industry i don't know i don't know i mean you know who knows maybe they're behind the scenes some of the of the the you know the fact that this isn't going anywhere legislatively um we all know they've got a voice, a very powerful voice. Uh, but I don't. I'm not smart enough, nor am I plugged in enough to know, you know, how that's all transpiring. You know, one would think big pharma would would love to see this commercialized because they're going to have the money and the wherewithal to to commercialize this further. Um, and I would think that to your question about psychedelics earlier, I think that psychedelics has a very attractive medicinal opportunity, but I don't think it's got the commercialization opportunities that cannabis has on a, obviously on a recreational side. So there's just, it's a different, it's a different animal. Yeah. I, I would figure that, you know, companies like Jazz Pharmaceutical spending seven point something billion dollars uh, would, would mean that, and it's not their only investment in cannabis, but it's, uh, you know, GW has only had Epidiolex and Sativax didn't go through. I would figure that they would be focusing a little bit more on, uh, you know, benefiting from their investment uh, of billions and billions of dollars in that space. So uh, who knows? What are, what are your personal feelings on cannabis and the therapeutic properties of, uh, of the plant? I'm a big proponent of it. Um, I mentioned my, I've told this story numerous times, but you know, I grew up in a Catholic family. Um, I wasn't really ever a big user. In fact, I'm still not a big user. I use, I take gummies, um, you know, every now and then, you know, from a, you know, to have fun, but also when I'm having trouble sleeping, I take gummies. Um, I'm not a big smoker, uh, but, but do every now and then. My mom has fibromyalgia and, Years and years ago, she was prescribed uh, 
opioids just for the pain. And she didn't know any difference. She was just doing what her doctor told her to do. Well, she got addicted. And, you know, my sisters and I had to have an intervention. And, um, and this was long before I was in the business. Uh, but she got herself off of it. But now she takes cannabis to help regulate the pain. And it's been a life's changer for her. And, you know, and she's a, and it's funny because I, whenever I'd go to a state, I'd bring back, you know, the huge supply for her and just take the risk. Well, now, you know, my dad, when he goes on golf trips to California, he brings back stuff. So he, you know, it's just a different mindset now. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to ask you actually, because I'm just curious, uh, I, I grew up in a very conservatively focused family on, you know, the, your brain on drugs kind of uh, brainwashing. What is your family feeling on, you know, you being in the cannabis space? Like, how do they, how do they feel about it? Yeah. That? So uh, I didn't tell my parents for a long time for over a year. And because um, I didn't know how they'd react. And then, uh, but then when I told them, they're like, why didn't you tell us? And I was like, well, I didn't know how to react. And so it's it kind of a joke. But no, they think it's great. And they, you know, my mom used to get mad when I wouldn't share. She'd find something, you know, she'd see something online about something I had said or been on a podcast or an interview or something. She's like, why didn't you tell me about this? I was like, well, I'm not going to sit here and spend my time sending you links to things that I've done. I'm not that type of person, number one, number two. I don't, anyway. Not gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, Tara, Tara, you know what you, you may want to do is how teach her how to do a Google alert on Matt Hawkins, and every single yeah. time you do anything, she gets a Google alert, and then she'll go click the link and uh, watch your content. I did that that's for my great. dad. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, you follow me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Matt, Matt, what are what are some of the biggest obstacles currently? I mean, we kind of touch on some of them. Just to summarize, what are some of the biggest obstacles that you you're, uh, need to overcome? Uh, these days, when I mean, it's the, it's the two biggest things are the lack of capital and the uh, and the lack of legislation and, or lack of legislative cooperation, and that and I'm including and I'm including regulate regulatory issues in that bucket. How about goals? Like, what goals have you set up for next uh, twelve to twenty four months as a fund? Well, not, I'll say it as a firm, not as a fund, because because the, the fund you know has they all have lives on their own. Uh, the firm, you know, we're looking to, um, you know, grow through diversifying ourselves. Like, for example, um, we've been asked to work on a lot of restructuring projects just because of our, you know, operating skills and what we've done, you know, with the turnaround, with the whole uh, turnaround of three or four different companies that we've been involved in and the, you know, and then the, the fact that we, we put four companies together to form state house holdings. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we know our way around restructuring and um, it's where I cut my teeth in the early stages of my career. Right. Uh, both my partners, you know, and, and, and our, and Tiffany left and our team. That's what she lived and died in the, in the, on the credit side. So we, uh, we we're, we're actually going to start doing some of that work just to, you know, augment uh, fee income. And so, um, and that's something that we're prepared to do in other facets too, until we're able to get back to the market and say, okay, the time has changed. The, the climate has changed. There's new capital that's in play. It's time to pounce. Uh, but until then, it's just, we don't want to bang our heads in the wall and try to raise money from 
sources that aren't there. Yeah. So does restructuring, just so I clearly understand this, I mean, you have operational players, you have uh, cultivation, you have uh, packaging, you have that in your portfolio. So you would put those assets in place and see. If well, can... no, what I mean is, is that companies that, I mean, obviously the, the company is going through turmoil right now and there's companies that need to be restructured that need to be, uh, you know, there's workouts that are, that are in oh, place right now right. and in the space. So we, we would kind of be plug and play operators, plug and play, uh, financial folks. Uh, but then we also have operating, um, partners that we would put into place to, to help, you know, things on, you know, with boots on the ground too. So, uh, uh, and we just, you know, because of our longevity and track record in the space, we've been asked to do a couple of these things and we're going to start doing it in earnest. Do, Do you prefer debt versus equity or does it matter? Uh, no, it absolutely matters. I think it, it depends on, you know, what part of the cycle you're investing in right now. I mean, debt is probably a more preferred vehicle um but then again the industry is is so debt laden right now that it, that it's it's hard to find a way to make it work for these companies and so uh it just it depends it, it really it, it depends upon the 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 situation okay now what we'll, now we'll have some fun i think i grilled i grilled you long enough no it was really good i i appreciate your insight because uh I think people who are listening to this really need to understand the complexity of this industry. I, I just I just still talk to people and like, oh, cannabis. They still have this green rush mentality and they just have no clue on yeah, how right. difficult it is to, to be in this business uh, besides the competition. Like if it was a, a normal quote unquote business, you still have your general competition, but you have so many other factors that are part of this that I don't think people understand. So I definitely appreciate, uh, you know, you, you talking about some of those. Um, okay. Please describe your first experience with cannabis. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, well, I know, I, actually, this is pretty funny. I think I was a freshman in college and I took a bong hit. And the next thing I know, one of my uh, pledge brothers was chasing me around the new, a room with like a kitchen knife just mess with me and i was freaking out <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, he triggered your uh, stress reactivity gene we, we have to do your dna test and find out uh, right 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 for you <laughs> I, i'm a big music guy so uh uh do you remember the very first concert that you ever attended uh yes um the first concert well well I, I have two different buckets. One was um, like a smaller venue than the versus the big venue. And I think the smaller venue was at Six Flags and it was uh, Billy Idol. And then the large venue was uh, Van Halen, 1984 tour. Freaking great. I just saw Billy Idol right before he went to Vegas at the Roxy and he was still fantastic. Is that right? Great. Yeah. And he played it like his old punk stuff. He doesn't really play anymore, too. So he's really good. That's awesome. I saw uh, The Police Synchronicity was also a big one in in my childhood. What was really cool about that is um, I then saw it. So the the reunion tours for when David Lee Roth came back with Van Halen was around the same time that that the police did their uh, kind of reunions tour, just the three of them. And the police show was so much better and 
even though like Sting and uh, Stuart Copeland just can't stand each other, yeah, but yeah. they they still have so much chemistry. And then whereas you know David Lee Roth and, and Eddie Van Halen, I felt like they just couldn't be on the same stage together. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I I saw both of those tours too, and I saw Sting play the Grammy Museum, and he was fantastic. And I saw when Van Halen did their reunion prior to you know Eddie Eddie passing, and they had Wolfie right. on bass uh, at that time. And uh, that's right, was, he was, Michael Anthony was gone. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and he uh, and uh, and he was doing the sword thing, and he cut himself with a sword. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> But Cool and the Gang opened up for them. They were fantastic. Yes, they did. That. I was like, what that, what's this connection? I don't know, but it was great. I didn't get the connection either, that. but it yeah. was it was fantastic. Um, a quick Billy Idol story, and I'll, I'll switch it. I went to see Billy Idol, I don't know, like five years ago at the Viper Room. He came out, and I think he was, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not going to... I'm not going to say he was under the influence or anything because I don't know what his status of sobriety is. But they started playing Eyes Without a Face, and he's playing the music, and he's not singing it. And he goes, shit, does anybody know how the song goes? And I have him singing almost karaoke style off somebody's uh, phone, the lyrics. He must, have, he must have performed that song thousands of times. Uh, just saying. Wow. It's a memorable show. <laughs> Interesting. All right. So if... Um, for next year, if you had to choose like five albums that you have to listen to, the, these are the only five that you can listen to or, or songs or whatever it is. I know it's a hard question. And I always preface this. When people ask me, it'll change an hour from now or tomorrow it'll change, but I'll put you in the spot. See if you can come up with five. So, okay, wait, hang on a second. But are they albums that, that I'm familiar with that I want to hear? That I, that yeah, I, yeah. You just, you're only listening, you can only listen to five albums for a year. What albums would Got it. Be? Okay. Uh, probably um, Joshua Tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'll put Synchronicity in that bucket. Um, there's got to be some um, like old school, like mellow stuff too. I'm not thinking of. Um, uh Carly Simon's greatest hits. Uh and I just saw James Taylor live, so like his his greatest hits probably. Okay. Yeah, one uh, more. One more. Um maybe uh I'll do Carr's greatest hits. Great. Love that. That's great. That's a great list. I I, I was on I was on a, a show and we did this whole record thing. And the guy told me that I'm disqualified if I'm using greatest hits. I can't use greatest hits. So you have to be like actual albums. I didn't do that for you. You're cool. Greatest yeah. hits, fine. Because otherwise, I'd, I'd be screwed. Because I, Exactly. Who remembers the names of every single yeah. album? Yeah, I, I had two of them, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah you did. You synchronicity. Synchronicity, yeah. exactly. Um, what has cannabis meant in your life? Um, it's changed my life. I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm proud to be, you know, among, you know, one of the first organized groups to be investing in this space. You know, I, 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 I wish we could do more. I wish there was more capital available to us right now. Um, I'm never going to do anything else other than I think do something cannabis related unless something, you know, it'll be an offshoot of that, but you know, the, it is, 
it's been the best part of my professional life, without a doubt. And the fact that it also impacts me personally with what my mom goes through is, uh, is which I, I can't put it into words. That's great. All right. So last bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. My room? Yes. Uh, it was filled with uh, sports posters and uh, Sports Illustrated uh, swimsuit models on the wall and drove my mom crazy. Nice. I love that. Yeah. Real proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> I did the same thing. I did. I have... had the uh, I had the uh, Iceman uh, poster for George Gervin. I had yeah. Chairman of the Boards Moses Malone. Then I had the uh, Doomsday Defense Dallas Cowboys poster. Yeah, you know I, I'm uh, Moses Malone. Like I'm a, I'm a Sixers. I'm a Philly fan. So that was my team. I love that team. I love Doctor J. I mean, that, when they won the championship, I was that was awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great team. So hopefully we can replicate that someday. Uh, Matt, I wanted to, first of all, before, um, well, actually let people know where to connect with you and uh, where to, uh, you know, where yeah, to find Yeah, you send me a note at mhawkins at eecpartners.com. Our website is eecpartners.com. Um, you know, I've got LinkedIn stuff, but I would rather you send me an email because I don't check LinkedIn all the time. Uh, I just want to say that you've been a staple in this industry. You've done so much. And for those people that, that listen to this and uh, really check out what uh, you have you have been doing and, and support you in uh, your mission, because I think it's really, really important. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of people, funds or people have actually survived <laughs> from, you know, when you started. A lot of those companies are, are gone, but you've you've actually uh, made a difference in the industry. And I, I really appreciate that. Uh, personally, I, I know my audience does as well. So thank you for well, that. Well, I appreciate the sentiment, and, uh, but I take it, I take it very, very seriously. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I appreciate you being on and thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks, Len. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.